Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Helen Lackner about the roots of the conflict in Yemen. Then, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about U.S. goals in Yemen and what U.S. goals should be in other conflict-affected areas. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Helen Lackner is the author of Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. She's also the author of Yemen in Crisis, Devastating Conflict, Fragile Hope, which is coming out in January. She's been working on Yemen for almost five decades. Helen, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much, and I'm very honored to have been invited. You have written a really remarkable book that puts Yemen into a broader historical context. Can you put the conflict in Yemen that we're seeing right now into the context of conflict in Yemen? I think one of the interesting things that struck me when doing this book has been looking back and seeing that political and military and even social conflicts have been going on there for many, many centuries. And that in that sense, what's happening today isn't an exception. It's more of a continuation of earlier problems. And I think that was quite a lesson for me. That struck me as well. And when I visited Yemen in 1992, and then again in 2008, Ali Abdullah Saleh was the ruler. He ruled Yemen for 33 years from 1978 to 2011. And reading your book, it seemed to me that the Saleh period almost came across as a period of great stability in Yemen, also a time when North and South Yemen united. As you think broadly about the history of Yemen, what positive lessons do you think we should take from Ali Abdullah Saleh's rule? And what negative lessons should we take from Ali Abdullah Saleh's rule? If you're talking about contemporary Yemen, it's impossible to do so without discussing Ali Abdullah Saleh. And it's also worth remembering that when he came to power in 1978, nobody thought he was going to last very long. And I remember throughout the early 80s when I first lived in Sana'a, every morning waking up and expecting to find that he had been overthrown. Between 77 and 78, you know, three presidents came and went. So his longevity is one of the relevant factors. And I believe that he managed to stay as long as he did and rule the country through a number of skills that he had. One skill he had was being quite a popular person. I don't want to use the word populist, but popular in the sense that he could speak and make very rousing speeches. If you compared his speeches to those, for example, of the leaders of the PDRY. This is the former South Yemen. Yeah, and of the anyone else. All those guys would put you to sleep. He actually spoke to people as if he was addressing them in their house, I mean, as a human being. And I think that gave him a lot of support. I think his implementation of Yemeni unity was a very, very important factor in his success. And this is when North and South Yemen united in 1990. In 1990, yeah. He initiated the process and he dominated the process. But the fundamental fact is that Yemeni unity was an extremely popular slogan in both what was the PDRY 
in the south and the YR in the north. This was very, very genuinely popular, whereas other political slogans really did not have much impact on the population. Other aspects that are important is that the 70s was the period of heavy migration to Saudi and the Emirates, so living standards were rising. So there was a sort of positive tendency throughout the what was then the YAR. Although he famously said that ruling Yemen is like dancing on the heads of snakes. And there was a ruthless part of Ali Abdullah Saleh's rule. One of the things that struck me in your book was you made a distinction in Yemen between the regime and the government. What did you mean by distinguishing between Ali Bella Saleh's regime and the government of Yemen? We hadn't really gotten around to talking about his negative features. I don't want to appear to be a great, great supporter of him, but at the same time, I do respect what he did. Basically, what happened in the YR and then later in the Republic of Yemen was that the regime was Ali Abdullah Saleh and his military, security, and other direct supporters, often described as cronies. And they were the real decision makers. The government, i.e. the ministers, basically were little more than clerks. The decision-making process did not take place in the government, prime minister and ministers of this, that, or the other. The real decision-making process was amongst Ali Abdullah Saleh and his very close associates. So to me, that was the big difference. And I remember talking to people in ministries when it became abundantly clear. I mean, I had one particular minister once told me he didn't even have the authority to select his secretary. Somebody else made that decision. So the regime was Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had a very tight political control. And I think to come to the heads of snakes image, one of his skills was having an excellent memory and knowing people and remembering people he had met. And so he had this personal touch when he met people, but he also was extremely well aware of communal situations, often described as tribal situations, and was very, very able to manipulate these in order to sponsor intra-conflicts that gave him and his people the final authority. So if he came across a tribal leader or a community leader who didn't really follow him or didn't do what he was told, he would have him undermined by having conflicts emerging in that person's areas. And at the same time, his other tool for gaining control nationally was the General People's Congress, which again was really more of a patronage organization. It wasn't based on an ideological position other than unless you describe supporting Ali Abdullah Saleh as an ideology. And so he basically controlled most elements of the country through these different procedures. And one of the images I remember keenly from my travels to Yemen in the early 90s was on the evening news, Ali Abdullah Saleh would often show up in four or five different outfits through the day. So the evening news would capture what the president did, and he starts off in a suit, and then he goes into a military uniform, and then he goes into dress typical of the North and dress typical of the South, all about connecting, as you suggest, with different constituencies on their terms. I mean, yes, absolutely. You know, he was a very skilled politician. I think one has to recognize that. But he did not operate in the interests of the majority of his population. That was not his objective. 
So one of the things that always puzzled me after he was forced from power during the Arab uprisings of 2011, there was a transitional government, but Yemen seemed to be on a better glide path than most countries. They had a national dialogue conference. And as your book recounts, it had 565 members. They produced 1,800 outcomes. It was a group that was 28% female. And yet the outcome of this process was basically a civil war. It was a failure. In your mind, was the problem of this national dialogue conference a problem of conceptualization for how you go from this period of unrest after the Arab uprisings into a period of political consolidation? Or was it just a problem of execution? I don't think it was either. I think basically the problem was that the National Dialogue Conference took place on the sidelines of what was really going on in the country. Ali Abdallah Saleh was forced out of the presidency, but he wasn't forced out of influence, if not power. He retained his General People's Congress, which was at that time the main political organization in the country. And he retained an enormous amount of power through that. And if you look at the agreement of the transition in 2011, it gave his organization half the ministries. And the other half of the ministries went to a conglomerate, you could say, of the opposition, the formal opposition parties from the parliament and what were described as the new forces of civil society, youth and women. So he was not excluded and even in the National Dialogue Conference, it was very clear, and I saw this on a daily basis in the period that I spent there, is that the meetings were in the mornings, and everybody was saying after lunch they were going to have further discussions, and a lot of the people from the General People's Congress were basically saying we're going to the leader, in other words, to Ali Abdullah Saleh, to get our instructions. So while the National Dialogue Conference was going on, two other things went on which were very important. One is the living conditions of the population continued to deteriorate. So there was not a popular support for this conference. It was really regarded as a marginal event of an elite taking place in the one and only super luxury hotel in Samar and was experienced as being completely unrelated to people's problems. And the other thing that went on is that although they were present in the National Dialogue Conference, the Houthi movement continued to build up their control over different parts of the areas that they controlled and expanded around it. This is in the far north of the country. Yeah, in the far north, and they were expanding kind of further into the other parts of the country. A further element that I think was a fundamental issue about the transition is that supported by the GCC and the UN and the international community, it had been decided that this transition had to be completed within two years, which was a completely unrealistic timetable for such a complex procedure. And it meant that a whole host of its different elements had to take place at the same time, including the fundamental one known as a security sector reform. And basically, how can a state or a government enforce any decisions if it doesn't have a security mechanism to enforce them? So what happened is that the security sector reform was sabotaged largely by Ali Abdullah Saleh and his military 
So the transitional regime was not able to overcome the fundamental power of Ali Abdullah Saleh and his security forces. You mentioned the Houthi rebellion, which started in 2004 and has been raging since. What are the roots of the Houthi rebellion and why has it been so hard to reach a resolution? I think the roots are one thing and the current situation is another. The roots were essentially, again, something which you could blame Ali Abdullah Saleh for. He supported and encouraged the rise of a Sunni fundamentalist movement in the very heartland of Zaidi areas. Now, the Houthis are Zaidis who are five Shia and different from the Iranian 12 Shia, and I think are mostly prominent in Yemen. And the Houthis was a kind of revival Zaidi movement, which was rebuilding itself as a more religious movement against the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime and very much against this rise of the Sunni Salafi movement, which again had been encouraged not just by Ali Abdullah Saleh, but also by the Saudis. So that was the origin of the six wars that took place between 2004 and 2010, which were wars between the Houthis facing the Saleh regime. What happened afterwards, you have a significant change between 2010 and 2014. The Houthis partly participated in national politics, as in the uprising of 2011, as in the National Dialogue Conference, but they didn't join the government. And they also, during that period, found themselves in agreement with Ali Abdullah Saleh. So the alliance between the Houthi movement and Ali Abdullah Saleh really started around 2013. So you then have a situation where, in alliance with Saleh, they in a position to take control of all the major institutions and mainly take control of Sana'a city in September 2014. And after that, I think you have a change in their political actions. So, and you now have a situation where the Houthis have now been fighting for the rest of the country since 2015. They got rid of Ali Abdullah Saleh and killed Saleh in December 2017 and have since then been in full control of the part of the country that they dominate. And it's important to remember that although that's geographically only about a third of the country, demographically it is more than two-thirds of the population who are under their control. So they have become a much more powerful political and military force in the last few years. Are you surprised that this conflict has lasted as long as it has, that the Houthis, after 18 years, are still fighting and they haven't been able to vanquish the rest of the country, but they also haven't been able to be defeated? I think I may be less surprised than others. If you look back at my writings in April 2015, when the internationalized war started, I was asked by Open Democracy to write a short piece, and I wrote, this is the beginning of what is going to be a very long and nasty war. And people around me told me later that they really thought I was crazy when I said that. They don't say that any longer. <laughs> to me, it was quite clear that this was not going to be a two-week battle like the earlier conflicts we can talk about in recent decades but that it was a very fundamental one and that it would last time. 
So in that sense, I'm less surprised. I think another reason to not be surprised today is that today, on the one hand, you have the Houthis who have very clear, straightforward, authoritarian control over their forces and appear united, even if there are differences below the surface, who are facing a dispersed and completely disunited so-called internationally recognized government. And in recent weeks, it's very clear that one of the many reasons they felt that they didn't have to renew the truce that expired on 2nd of October is that they can see that their enemies are so divided. And a united enemy might have persuaded them otherwise. So what should we expect from negotiations to end this war? What do you think a moment would look like where a settlement is possible? What would the settlement look like? The first thing to remember is that however fantastically brilliant and effective mediators are as individuals, there is nothing they can do until the parties in conflict actually want to solve the problem. They can try their best, but until the parties involved want the solution, they can't help, really. And I think that's an important element that needs to be taken into consideration. If you look at what happened around October, it's clear that the Houthis felt at the last minute, if not earlier, that they didn't need to renew this. And this is when the ceasefire expired October 2nd. Yeah, they felt that they didn't need to renew it. I think if you had a serious challenge to the Houthis militarily, and if you had a united opposition to the Houthis, after all, they are surrounded. Technically, if you look at a map, you have internationally recognized government forces in Maghreb on their east. You have them surrounding them in the south and elsewhere, and you have them on the coast in the west in the shape of Tariq Saleh's forces. If all those people could get themselves together and organized, the chances are that the Houthis would feel under much greater pressure than they do at the moment. And it doesn't look to me like any of the parties are feeling exhausted yet. I think that's one of the most unfortunate aspects of this war, which is the civilians are the ones who are suffering. The ordinary people are suffering. The humanitarian situation is deteriorated even more, regardless of the six months of the truce. And the leaderships, they're doing okay out of this war. They're getting richer and they're doing okay. And I think that's one of the many extremely depressing aspects of the situation. So given our whole conversation that Yemen has had a tumultuous history, there's been lots of conflict, that it's hard to bring everybody together. As we look forward to a post-conflict environment, what does success look like? How much conflict is there in a post-conflict environment? What does the economy look like? Does Yemen have to have a huge outflow of population because there are too many Yemenis and the population is growing too quickly to support everybody on land that doesn't have enough water. What should we say? This might not look great, but it actually is success in Yemeni terms. What should we be aiming for? I think a number of things. The water crisis is obviously extremely important, but Yemen doesn't have to be a country from which forced migration, forced environmentally caused water migration happens. Much of the water is used in agriculture. 
if you make sure that priority of water use is given to domestic usage and to livestock and not to agriculture, Yemenis can continue living at home. And this is a possibility. You do need to also make fundamental changes in the agriculture system where you've had very misguided agricultural policies focusing on irrigated export crops, which is absurd in the context of a country like Yemen. But there is a lot of work to be done on improving rain-fed crops. And we need to remember that 70% of Yemenis are still in rural areas. Moreover, Yemenis rural areas, you've been there, you know, is incredibly beautiful country and has fantastic potential for ecological tourism, for hiking tourism, for all kinds of forms of very healthy and potentially income-generating levels at the community level. And that's something that could be expanded. So these are aspects that need to be taken into, to be addressed and need to be done. In addition, of course, to a modern economy, I think regardless of these points, there is a need for the GCC to take a much more positive attitude to Yemen. Yemeni labor migration could be a factor to help both Yemen and the GCC states, as well as increasing the market for produce from the GCC states. There are 30 million Yemenis, that's as many as there are Saudis, basically, and a lot more than there are of anybody else in the peninsula of the GCC. So there are many things that can be done. I don't think Yemen's going to become a super wealthy country, but the situation could be vastly better than it is today. But it to have tourism, to have people investing in Yemen also requires an end to the cycles of violence that your book describes dating back centuries. As you know, a lot of that violence was avoided in the mid-20th century by heavy Saudi subsidies of a patronage system, which kept people bought off but didn't really help Yemenis prosper. Is the answer to go back to a patronage system, an authoritarian system, which at least saves people from starvation and, and provides some infrastructure? Or do you see the necessity of a more democratic process and more indigenous industry and and a more self-contained system? Well, I think that's going against the current trend where authoritarianism seems to be very much on the rise, and not just in the Arabian Peninsula, but plenty of other places too. But I believe that for Yemen, a much more democratic country, which would give people the opportunity of expressing their views of having a regime that answers to, that focuses on their needs rather than on the small elite, would be much more appropriate. But I also think it will be essential for financial support from other states and including Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Though, of course, I think the reliance and the way a lot of international discussions are taking place where they expect billions to be poured in by those two states, I think that's misguided. And if you look at what's happened on the humanitarian front, for example, this year, I think it is illusory to imagine that they are going to finance all the things that people are expecting them to finance. And moreover, their finance, like everybody else's, does not come without strings. So I think all the external support is necessary. I don't think returning to a patronage regime would help. 
the important thing is to enable Yemeni citizens, men, women, younger people, to participate, to build a country on the basis of a lot of things that they're already doing. I mean, if you look at community-level institutions, of community groups, of small community enterprises, all these things are happening and are the elements from which can be built a political system and a social system which would give much more voice to the people. Helen Lackner is the author of Yemen, Poverty and Conflict, a new book out from Rutledge. Helen, thanks so much for joining us on Babel. Well, you're welcome. Anytime. Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about U.S. goals in Yemen and what U.S. goals should be in other conflict-affected areas in the region. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me again for a tabletop. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. So, John, in the interview and in her book, Helen Lackner noted that conflict has been part of Yemen for hundreds of years. What are the appropriate goals for the U.S. government in Yemen if those patterns of conflict are endemic? Well, I think it's really hard because on the one hand, there are clearly limits to what the U.S. can do. It can't remake somebody else's country. I think we've seen throughout the last 200 years that remaking somebody else's country in your image is a fool's errand. But that's not to say that the U.S. shouldn't be contributing to trying to make things better, to trying to manage conflicts. And I think getting that balance between not having the ambition to totally remake everything, but simultaneously putting effort into mediating, alleviating, not just further embedding the patterns of conflict, rewarding a system of warlords that actually keeps things where they are, I think is also the wrong strategy. So it strikes me that the only thing you can do is to have a balance between what you have to do in the immediate term and what you're trying to do to plant seeds for a different longer term. Right. I would agree with John. I mean, the story of the last half millennium in Yemen can sort of briefly be summarized as a series of attempts of outside powers to impose their own values or or structures to Yemen's tribal structures. I think it was Nasser that actually described Yemen as his Vietnam. But that said, I mean, that's not necessarily what needs to happen here, as John was saying. And I think that there's a way in the poorest country in the Middle East, in the biggest humanitarian crises of this century, that you can at least begin to better the livelihoods and the living conditions of people on the ground. And how to do that, I think, without entrenching warlords or entrenching the opposite of confidence building measures, which would be, you know, like conflict building measures, I think is a really tricky thing to do. For the U.S. government, which increasingly sees the Middle East and Yemen and many of these protracted conflicts as not a priority, frankly. So I think, you know, using the really concrete bits of leverage that it does have when it comes to aid or when it comes to leverage with regional allies and things like that, much can be done. But it really depends on how much the United States, I think, wants to prioritize those nitty gritty aspects of peace building. And as Natasha points out, Yemen's history of extracting resources from people who've tried to control Yemen is a long history. Most recently, the Saudis, who poured billions of dollars a year into Yemen after the Yemeni revolution in 1962. What I've heard from everybody trying to do work in Yemen is there is this sort of extractive aspect to the way people deal with foreign invaders and a certain Yemeni pride that Yemen, certainly North Yemen, has never been conquered 
by outside powers. The Ottomans were never able to get much past the coast. There's a Yemeni pride that they haven't been subjugated, but also a Yemeni ability to extract resources from the people who want to shape Yemen. The interview was focused very explicitly on Yemen, but we've also thought about other conflict-affected areas in this program, Natasha on Syria, the rest of the program on a variety of other conflicts like Iraq and Libya. How should policymakers in Washington be thinking about conflict-affected areas like those? And what kind of goals should the U.S. government be setting for areas in the region with other long-standing conflicts? So, I mean, again, I would just be a bit real about what we would hope from the U.S. or this sort of amorphous international community versus what it would actually do. And I, I would just give you a really small example. I mean, we focus a lot of, on water at the program, and there's a new global strategy for the U.S. government that doesn't mention Yemen on a list of 22 high-priority countries or strategic countries, in spite of the fact that, as Helen actually points out in her book, significant populated parts of the country will become uninhabitable within a generation because of water insecurity. So, I mean, I think that that aspect of you know what the international community is willing to do or what the U.S. government is willing to do is a big part of that. But then I think moving on to what we've actually seen from the U.S. government, I think that the U.S. government is essentially trying to revert back to the old way of doing things, which was to sort of prioritize a strongman's ability to handle quote unquote populations. And I think that's part of the U.S. government acknowledging that it does want to deprioritize the region and that it isn't and never really has been great at dealing with non-state actors and this, the kind of messiness that we see in Yemen today and other conflicts in the region. But I would just say that I think that the problem with that is multifaceted. And one of the reasons is one of the reasons that John was talking about, which is this sort of kleptocratic, extractive nature of these regimes. And I think that especially places like Yemen, especially places like Syria and others that lack a lot of natural resources, there are now sort of razor thin margins to do that. I mean, they don't have sort of the resources necessary to provide this bloated public sector, to provide gains to sheikhs throughout the country to maintain that kind of balance. So I think it's going to be really difficult. And I think the only real solution to that is to set the table a little bit differently on the ground for these dialogues. Because right now, as John rightly pointed out in the interview, and I think Helen agreed with this, is that they're, you know, the warring parties are just not tired yet. And I think part of the reason is that they gain while others in the country tend to lose. And there's not very much the U.S. can do about that. The United States really tried to invest in Iraq and create a different future in Iraq. And Iraq remains a country in turmoil. I think, you know, the United States put more than a trillion dollars into refashioning Iraq. And you can say, well, the U.S. didn't do it the right way. But I think the Bush administration did its best. And I think there are, frankly, limits to what the U.S. can do, should expect. I certainly remember all of the enthusiasm for how much the U.S. could do after deposing Saddam Hussein. And I think the cold, hard reality is that the United States can be a catalyst, but it's not really effective as an anchor because it keeps dealing with people who say that my future and my children's future and my grandchildren's future depends on what happens here, coming up against a bunch of Americans who say, this is my job for another six months, and then I go somewhere else. And you just, you can't deal with that disparity in 
how much people care about the outcome, how much people are willing to fight for the outcome, how much people are willing to just wait until the Americans or the, the Europeans or somebody else moves on. And the policy, I think, has to take account of that reality, not as something unfortunate, but as something central to how things are likely to unfold. John, that kind of reminds me of our mini-series and how we talked about one of the challenges for the post-9-11 Middle East is that we kind of focused on democratization a lot in the region. As we think about these conflicts, what role should peacebuilding and democratization, kind of like the U.S. support for Yemen's national dialogue, which you and Helen talked about in the interview, what role should that play in U.S. policy towards conflict-affected societies? I think it should be an element, but I think it's hard to make it a central preoccupation. It's going to aggravate some people. There's going to be a frustration among people you have to work with that you're doing this. I think it is an important strand, but it's a long-term payoff. I mean, either the democratization or liberalization of societies happens at best over decades. People in policy positions have their jobs for two, three years at the outside, usually. So I think it's an important line of effort, but we also have to be measured about how much can we expect in the one-year timeframe, even the 10-year timeframe, and what else do we need to do? The only thing I would add to that is that we are increasingly seeing protracted conflicts that will not go away as great powers competition rises at the Security Council and essentially makes the UN and other multilateral bodies just ineffective at helping to solve these conflicts. And in the meantime, you know, as years or decades pass, you have warring actors that have increasingly more to lose and then a population on the ground that has increasingly less to lose. And that's a really toxic mix, I think, over the long term. So, I mean, I would say it's a fact of life, especially in the past 15 years, that these humanitarian crises have doubled in length. But there's one aspect of Helen's book that I wish I could just abridge and sort of put it on a bumper sticker. <laughs> And it's this sort of repeated notion that I think works really well for U.S. domestic politics and perhaps even at multilateral bodies like the U.N., but that's that there's no military solution to the crisis, only a political one. And she says, you know, again, this is repeated thoughtlessly, but it defies reality because for more than seven years now, Yemenis on all sides have been actively seeking a military solution. And we forget that historically speaking, political agreements are reached after military means have either been achieved for one side or the other, or there's been an unacceptable stalemate. So the notion that we can continue these dialogues and continue humanitarian aid without trying to shift the dynamics on the ground to get people to accept some kind of resolution, acceptable resolution is I think is a fool's errand in a sense. And I think that we just need to be really careful about what is going on to the population on the ground and what kind of demographic realities are we entrenching that may come back to bite us maybe years or decades later, because there is a, a very heavy cost to these protracted conflicts. So thinking about that time frame of years or decades later, John, in the interview, you and Helen talked at the end and you noted how, like many conflict-affected states, Yemen's population has been expanding pretty rapidly. Where do you think migration fits into Yemen's future and how should that inform U.S. policy towards Yemen? It's really hard. I was in Yemen in 1992 for about five weeks and the population of Yemen was 
almost a third of what it is now. The population of poor states expands really rapidly in many cases, and Yemen is certainly like that. I cannot imagine that there's any sort of solution to the challenges of Yemen without migration playing a role, partly because there are going to be limits to how much the Yemeni economy can produce, how quickly, how much Yemenis can earn inside of Yemen. When I was in Yemen in 1992, there were a lot of Yemenis who had just come back from Saudi Arabia, where they had worked in many cases for decades and brought capital home. There needs to be a component where people are able to move and work. I think you are not only seeing this in the Yemen conflict, you've seen in the Syria conflict where half of all Syrians have been moved out of their homes, but half of those are outside the country. There can't be resilience without some sort of extraterritorial form of employment for people. And to me, it seems that whether it's in the Gulf states or in other Arab countries or in Europe or elsewhere or in the United States, there has to be a way for people to earn money and send it home. And waiting until Yemen, as a young and hungry country, can get its economy together, can build the infrastructure, can build the educational system, I think the strains are going to be explosive without having a pressure release valve. Yeah, I mean, we don't talk about this because everyone is so scared of displacement and refugees, but displacement is a very historical survival strategy. And Yemenis can move for livelihoods or education and eventually bring all of that back to their country. And, you know, Yemenis have been doing that for many, many years, as have Somalis. And so I think to a certain extent, we do have to see migration as not a solution, but I think one of many solutions for Yemen's many challenges in the future. And for what it's worth, Yemenis own many of the bodegas in New York these days. It's a little known phenomenon. People assume that they're Hispanic, but in many cases, they're Yemenis. Yeah. And actually, some of the oldest immigrants, I don't think many people know this, but some of the oldest immigrants to Scotland were actually originally fishermen from Yemen. So this is a very long, long history of migration from Yemen. We say that with the hopes that Yemenis can stay in their country. But I do think that there is historical examples of there being potential benefits to that as well. As always, this conversation has left us with a lot to think about. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.